bizarrely, that's a true story. So I thought I'd start off with that wonderful story uh, by asking this question. Uh, do we have a misconception? She read the label wrong. And I'm just wondering sometimes, do we have a misconception of what maybe mission is? Um, that's right. Thank you, Rosie. Uh, do we have a misconception of what uh, mission is? Maybe we think, well, mission, evangelism, uh, for those of you who don't know what that word means, it means basically sharing the story of Jesus with others. This is something that can only done, be done by kind of superheroes, incredible people, like um, famous people from the Bible, such as Moses. So I thought I'd tell you what I learned at school about evangelism and how me and Moses are similar, but it's not the way you expect so if you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to open them. Uh, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to skip a few verses, uh, but this is the story of Moses. So Moses, now this is, this is the superhero Moses, you know, the guy with the long beard and the staff. He is in the desert, in the wilderness. He's done something stupid. We won't go into that story. He's murdered somebody, basically. He's been in this wilderness experience, and then he sees this kind of miraculous sign, which is like this um, vegetation, this bush that is on fire, but doesn't seem to burn up. So he has this kind of vision. He goes towards the vision, and God speaks to him audibly. Uh, so, so he hears God speak, uh, so this story tells us. And this is what happens. It says, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. And we're going to skip around a little bit. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. Verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 10. Here's the key. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So uh, God says to Moses, I've come down to rescue and I'm going to send you. And one thing I often say, and I've been here before, I've probably said this to you before, is if you're a Christian today, Jesus did not come to simply rescue you. He came to recruit you. And right now what's happening is Moses, Moses, the superhero of God, is being recruited. So of course, Moses says, absolutely where can I go? When can I do it? I'm so excited. If you read the story, actually Moses comes up with five excuses not to do what God has asked him to do. And I want to kind of share those excuses with you in a moment because many of them are my excuses, possibly your excuses. I hadn't realized you were about to go into Alpha, so hopefully this is really appropriate for you. As you think about what Rosie just talked about, the simplicity of inviting someone by giving them an opportunity to hear the gospel is kind of cool. So um, a while back, um, I don't know if I've ever shown you this, but um, this came through my door when I was in, living in Moston in Manchester. Uh, it was a document. It was three-sided little uh, leaflet, two-sided leaflet, tri-leaflet, I think you call them. Um, and it was about a boy called Robert McDermott. And basically it said that Robert McDermott, who's probably around about age 14, had been put under 
essentially house arrest. He'd been given an ASBO, an antisocial behavior order. And so what they did was they, they put a picture here of all the places he was allowed to go, but he wasn't allowed to go outside of this area. And, and he was only allowed to go in these areas with his parents. And, and you read through this document, it's pretty horrible. He's, he's obviously not a particularly nice lad, but, but you're reading through it thinking, it's just like the saddest piece of literature I ever got. And uh, you might not be able to see it here, but uh, it says what you can do. So I'm reading this leaflet and thinking, okay, what can we do? And it basically says this. If you see McDermott break the, his ASBO, please contact the police or the council's local housing service, safe in the knowledge that we will protect your privacy. In other words, if you see him outside the red lines, give us a call. We won't tell anybody it's you, and we'll put him away. You could sum, summarize this whole leaflet into three words. And the three words are, we give up. If the church gives up, there's no hope for Robert. And the church can give up by simply coming to meetings and worshipping God and doing our thing. But Jesus hasn't called us simply to be rescued. He's called us to be recruited. Um, I remember um, I was telling the guys yesterday in the Mission Masterclass that um, one, one of the times I was first asked to do uh, lessons, um, basically what happened was I was asked by this guy to come and do some Easter lessons. So we were given six one-hour lessons leading up to Easter in a public high school with hundreds of young people who hadn't heard Jesus. I'd never done lessons before. And I was invited in with this guy, and he said, Paul, will you come and hold my bags and just help me out a little bit? In the first lesson, he got me involved in more ways than I expected. It was a bit freaky for me. The teacher came and said, hey, Paul, you know what? Oh, sorry, hey, to, to this, well, he was called Paul, actually, so that works. Hey, Paul, um, we, need to, um, we need to split this up next week because so many more teachers want you. It was so good. So he turns to me and says, Paul, you can do a lesson, can't you, if I show you everything you can do? And I'm like, oh, I don't know, but I will do. Um, I had all sorts of excuses. So that was the second week. And the third week, he phones me up before the lesson and says, I can't make any, any of the rest of them. You need to do them. Can you do the rest of these four lessons? One-hour sessions on Jesus. I'll send you material. I knew he wouldn't, and he didn't. He just sent me four titles. Thank you very much. So I had a choice. Either I reach into these schools with hundreds of young people, or I don't. And the question came to me was, if I don't do it, who will? Now, nowadays, I think one of the problems in modern Christianity is a different question comes to our minds, and it's this question. Is this my ministry? Who cares? Your ministry, your spiritual gifts are just nuance. You're not called to be a worship pastor. I'm not called to lead pays. Aaron, in my opinion, is not called to be a pastor. We're called to advance the kingdom of God. Now, God's led Aaron because that's the best way right now he can lead and advance the kingdom of God. The best way I can. I had a good idea in 1992. Not had a good idea since then. So I'm still doing pays. But it's not my calling. My calling is the exact same as yours. It's to advance the kingdom of God and make missionaries. And some of you have risen slightly, listen, listen to Josh, some of the stories about Josh, 130 young people in the youth, that's fantastic, Josh, well done team, that's amazing, well done church, 130 young people, that's ph phenomenal. 
The fact is, Josh has probably said yes. I'd almost guarantee there are some empty seats here where other people should have said yes and they've not done it. And it's because we come up with excuses. And we come up with the kind of excuses that Moses came up with. And I'm going to share a couple of with them with you. Here's the first excuse. I'm a nobody. Verse, um, verse 11. But Moses, but Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? You know, there's a little list there. I don't tend to read these lists out, but I thought this was quite cool. Um, God's Bible heroes. Moses stuttered. David's armor didn't fit. Solomon was too rich. David was too young. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Gideon doubted. Samson had long hair. <laughs> Jesus was too poor. And Lazarus was dead, which I think is a fair excuse. I'm sorry, Lord, I'm dead. Okay, I'll give you that one. But the reality is all these guys had excuses. All these guys had reasons not to do it. You've probably heard my story. When I was at school, there was a game called Crucify the Christian, which was a great game if you weren't me because I was the only Christian in the class. So when the teachers were late, they would hang me up from the ceiling where you used to use the the ropes to open the windows or bury me under all the chairs. That, That was the game I played. I was the last person you would call. I felt like I was a nobody but I've learned some stuff um, since then Uh, and the first tip I would say is this allow God to make you a somebody by simply being available to serve simply being available to serve yesterday um, I talked about the the fact that um, it's really good that we invite people because Jesus invited people to him but I asked the question why do we spend so much of our time energy and money on inviting people when Jesus spent so much of his getting himself invited. He got himself invited. He was available. He said to Zacchaeus, hey, come down, I'm going to go to your house for tea tonight, which I thought was a bit cheeky, but I like it. He got himself invited. There are people who will invite you. Do you know there was some research done, Pays commissioned some uh, national research with some other partners, and they found out that this year that one in six young people are looking for someone to tell them more about Jesus. They've had parents who've rejected Jesus or rejected Christianity, um, but, so they don't know anything about it and they're interested. The year before, the same research company found that one in five adults in England wants someone to tell them about Jesus. It's a great time to get yourself invited. And all you really need to do is be available. In 19, well, in 88, I was asked to do some of this stuff I was not the best choice. I guarantee, I know people who were better at doing what I did, but I was available and they weren't. What can God do with you if you're available? Yes, in some ways you may feel like a nobody. Moses did. I did. You might. But availability turns a nobody into a somebody. That's all it takes, being available. Second excuse that um, I saw that I thought was kind of interesting uh, was that I don't know all the answers. I don't know all the answers. Ever thought? Who's ever thought, I can't share my faith because I don't know all the answers? Okay, one person. There's one honest person in this church. Okay. Um, absolutely, most of us would say that. I don't know all the answers. We don't know all the answers. You know, but I, it's just one of those things, isn't it, that you're not going to know all the answers probably, but is that the real issue? Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? 
then what shall I tell them? Um, last week I was in Preston, a church in Preston called Crossgate. They've got um, a Pays team there. And uh, some amazing things are happening. They, um, they went into an all-Muslim school, and the Muslim school enjoyed what they did so much, they took the entire school, from what I understand, or at least a large proportion of the school, the students, and took the students from the school into a Christian worship service so they could experience what it was like. That's cool. They got themselves invited, and then they invited. Their invitation went both ways. You talk to those pays guys, they don't know all the answers. I don't know all the answers. Aaron knows all the answers, but most of us don't know all the answers, do we? Rachel. <laughs> Rachel knows all the answers. So you might not. So, so what's, what's the key here? So when I was at school, um, obviously I wasn't like the most popular person at the school. And um, when I became a Christian, some of my friends kind of ridiculed what I believed. And uh, one of the things they said to me is, you know what, Paul? They said, um, we don't believe you really believe this. And I said, I do. I'm pretty sure. He said, well, if somebody hit you, if somebody punched you, the Bible says you're supposed to turn the other cheek, would you do it? And I said, I don't know. Maybe I would. I don't know. So uh, a few months later, and this is, this is, I want you to bear in mind, this is the class that used to crucify the Christian. So um, I'm on prefect duty one day. Um, so remember prefect duty? Like anybody in our school who had two legs was on prefect duty. And uh, one at, at lunchtime, you weren't allowed to let people in the, the building. So one day I'm on prefect duty inside the building. There's a little knock on the door. Open the door. This little lad runs in. Tiny he was. In my memory, he runs under my legs. That's how quick he, he ran in and how little he was. He didn't really. So he runs in. I said, I'll go and get him, lads, because he was only little. So I grabbed hold of him, started to drag him back, and then the doors exploded. Boom! And this guy was there. He was about eight foot wide. And he goes, I'm going to beep him, beep him, something or other to this little boy. So obviously it had been a kerfuffle. Okay? So he's coming after this little boy. So I stopped this little lad getting beaten by this big guy. But basically, I stopped him by standing in the way. And uh, I didn't fight back particularly. I just struggled a little bit to stop this big lad hitting this little lad. And it was pretty awkward. Because I wanted to say nasty things to him, but it's really awkward when you're Christian. You know, you're at school, North Manchester High School. You go, you jolly naughty man. Doesn't really have the bite that you want it to really have. So this, this fight a.k.a. massacre, spills out onto the playground. Everybody sees it. Eventually, I said a couple of things that made him feel a bit stupid, and he wanders off. The next lesson, the next period, you still call them periods at school, the next period, um, we're in there. Uh, it was a, I think it was a history lesson. The teacher hadn't turned up again. So I'm there. This lad comes in. Gibbs, I'm going to kill you afterwards. All right, then. <laughs> so he goes off. Um, now, if you're at my age, you'll remember that you used to have pants that were really wide, and they had big pockets in it, and you could put your books in the pockets. Do you remember that, any of the lads, some of you? So you didn't really walk. I never walked around school. I, I kind of went like this around school because I had pockets like they were thicker books. So I'm walking out to the school gates where all the fights happen. There's a big load of lads there. I'm waiting in the middle, ready for the, for, ready for the scrap. This guy never turns up, this lad. I think he's saving his energy till tomorrow. Tomorrow comes, never turns up. Never, ever saw him ever again, ever. About four years later, no, maybe a bit longer, six years later, I was preaching in a church locally to where I lived and where the school was. And this bloke comes up to me. He'd been in my class. And we're chatting about school. He'd, he'd become a Christian. And we talked about this story. And he said, well, you know, you know what happened, don't you? And I said, no, I know what happened. He said, well, he said, when that lad came to threaten you, the whole of the sixth form met together and sent a gang of six lads out to find him. 
And they went to this lad and said, Paul Gibbs is a Christian. Mess with Paul Gibbs and you mess with the sixth form. His parents came in the next day and they took him out of school and put him in a different school. You learn lessons from stuff like that. You learn lessons from it. You don't realize what people are looking for. Rosie said it. You, get, you think, oh, I'm just going to give this. It could be awkward. It's going to be, you know, they might, feel rege- might reject me. And they go, oh, wow, thank you. You don't realize that people are looking at your life. And what I learned is this. You don't always have to win the argument. You just have to win the person. And uh, I told you this story before, I think, but um, I took my boys to a, a, an ice hockey game once, and um, there was a fight, and a friend of mine was watching the fight. First time, he didn't really make much of a cuffle for my boys didn't notice. Second time, he was kind of like shouted. My boys started to notice. The third time, he was on his feet. My boys really noticed. And what I learned was that our, our beliefs don't transfer, our passions do. It's how we are. It's who we are. My boys took notice when he was passionate. They didn't even notice the fight when he was not passionate. And I think we have to understand that, that in our communities, we may not know all the answers, but people are not expecting us to. They're not expecting us to. In fact, in the postmodern society we live in now, if you say you've got all the answers, they're probably going to find you a bit suspect. So that pressure is off, to be honest. It's who we are, and it's our availability that's important. A third, a third um, I'm going to tell you a weird story now. A third excuse is, I'm not that convincing. Moses answered, this is his third excuse. Exodus 4 verse 1, Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? What if I can't convince them that God really appeared to me? So, um, here's something I learned at school about evangelism. Forgive me for it takes a little bit of time to tell the story, but I think it's important. So when I was at school, it was in the 70s and the 60s. Hey, by the way, can you not do a, an after-50s thing? Can you do an after-53 thing? Because I'm feeling really bad and old right now, so <laughs> I'd appreciate that. Anyway, when I was at school, it was like in the 70s. Margaret Thatcher was in power, and I went to a working-class school, so all the parents were on strike. So we as lads who went to an all-boys school decided we'd go on strike. So we decided that at lunchtime, what we'd do is, like, 300 lads, we'd all just not go back in after lunchtime bell. We all went on strike. So we were on strike, and we're all going, strike, 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 strike. And the bell goes, and we just stayed there. So it was a laugh. It was good. Strike, 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 strike. What happened next will stay with me for the rest of my life. So I have to just go back a little bit. I had some interesting teachers. Uh, there was Mr. Morton, the snapper. Uh, Mr. Morton was great because if you wound him up enough, he would just snap suddenly and go absolutely berserk. His face would go bright red. He'd go mad. I remember coming out of school once. There was an L-shaped playground. It was snowing. I walked out and there was nobody there. Now I was a bit. I was not naughty at school, but I was a bit. I was on another planet from everybody else, so I got in trouble quite often. So I walked out, and there's um, there's snow everywhere. None of the lads are around. So I walked around the corner. Oh, I could hear this din. I walked around the corner, and there's Mad Morton, the snapper. In the center of about 100 lads, all with snowballs. They're going, I'll take the lot of you on. Come on. Like this to them. I'm thinking, oh, it's a game. So I ran. I got a snowball. When I say snow, it was half snow, half grit. All right? <laughs> and I thought, oh, this would be great. So I chucked this snowball. And no word of lie, the world went in slow motion. I chucked this ball. And uh, it goes in the air. And he literally did this. He went. Boom on his nose. So he runs after me. I skid. He kicks me in the head three times and he wanders off. 
I always remember that story. And that's where some of the problems started. He wanders off. So he was like a nutter, all right? So then he had a Mr. Cox, all right? Mr. Cox was an atheist and an anarchist. Everything he wore was black. Black blazer, black shirt, black tie, black pants, black Doc Martens, black socks. He was just, he was crazy. He would, uh, do you remember, who remembers the, the strap? Anybody remember the strap? Am I that old? Yeah. <laughs> who had, who had, the, who got strapped at school? A cane, all right, you're like posher down here, aren't you? We had a strap. <laughs> All right, we had, a strap. we had a cane. Oh, very good. We had a strap. So anyway, so I'm at school. So this guy, um, so Mr. Got, he strapped. What he would do is he was a bit of a genius, all right? So he was an anarchist and an atheist. So he was an English teacher. So what he'd do is he'd get you to come out. I had a mate who was, I wasn't in his class, but I had a mate who was in his class who was a Christian. He'd get you to read that, and he'd get you to read a passage that had swear words in it. And if you didn't say the swear words, he'd strap you. It was genius, really, when you think about it, if... You're a bit manic, I guess. So that's what he did. So everyone was terrified of Mr. Cox. And then there was Warbo, who was another teacher who, this is a bit slimy in some respects, because what he would do is he would read out dirty jokes to lads. So I still remember some of the jokes he'd read out. And seriously, you'd get put away, I think, for doing this nowadays. Um, but he would do that. So he had all these different teachers. So two of them we were terrified of. One of them was like the joker. Everybody thought he was brilliant. And then we had Mr. Newbury. Uh, do anybody know Pastor Newbury from the Southwest? Anybody know him? So his brother was Simon Newbury. He was the Christian. All right. So nobody was scared of him or anything. So we're on strike. Strike, 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 strike. Eventually, the teachers, after about 10 minutes, realize there's a problem. So they send out these teachers to bring us in. So um, they send out. So the first one, I think, was uh, Mr. Morton. He comes out, screams at everybody. Nobody moves. Because we're afraid of him, but we're more afraid of being the one that gives in. Yeah. And then he then he sent out Mr. Cox. Same thing. Strouts, you know, he's got the strap. I can't remember. in my mind. I remember he's got the strap there, and he's, you know, nobody moves. Same reason. We're we're afraid of him, more afraid of each other. And then he sent out uh, Warbo. He comes out, and again, I, I can't remember exactly. It was Thirty odd years ago, but I remember him. Everybody's like, oh, you know, he's fun. He's the cool one. Nobody moved. And the reason nobody moved was he was the cool one, but it was the most uncool thing you could possibly do was break the strike and go out. And then they sent out Mr. Newbury. <laughs> and because I, I, I was sat, I was stood there when he walked out and people sniggered. It was like, what's he going to do when, like, if Warbo, Cox, and the snapper, what's he going to do? So what he did do was not what they did. So he didn't shout at anybody. In fact, he didn't raise his voice. He just looked at everybody. And he started walking. He, like, he kind of like did this because it was a bit of a distance. It was like from here to that back door. Um, not this back one, the one behind it. And he starts walking towards the crowd. And he's like this. And he was like, what's he, what's he doing? What's he doing? And then I had this horrible feeling to realize he's looking for the God Squad. Because he used to head up the God Squad, the Christian Union. And unfortunately, I was part of the God Squad. So he gets closer, and by then, I'd not learned how not to make eye contact. So he makes eye contact with me, and this, this is exactly what he did. He looks at me, and he goes, Gibbs, you know this is wrong. Follow me. And he walked around, and he walked back into school. And what was amazing about it was two things. One is I followed him. Two is he never even looked as if I was following him. He just knew I would. That's influence. I mean, that's it. I mean, can you imagine at school, you're the one person that does what everybody else 
says you shouldn't do because of, of him. This is what Romans says, and I think this is key to evangelism. Romans 4, verse 4 to 5 says this. We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and this is the key, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. Here's my third tip. It's all about character. It's all about character. That's what I've learned anyway. When charisma walks into a room, it said everyone notices Wow, look at that person. They've got charisma. If all you've got is charisma, no matter how persuasive your words, no matter how cool or awesome you are, if all you have is charisma, eventually people will suss you out, realize, and stop following you. When character walks in the room, no one notices. Because character is boring. But after a while, they do. And character brings hope. You know why character brings hope? Because character does what it says it believes. Character does what it says it will do. Character does something, then puts its arms out and says, it is finished. And people will follow character. And when the church regains its role of character in this world, people will follow us. But for so many of us, we're, we have excuses. We think it's about knowing all the answers. We think we're nobodies. Um, we think we might not convince people. People are looking, I believe, they're looking for characters, particularly in this world right now, they're looking for character. Now, character won't make you popular, and people will ignore you at first, but eventually it will pay dividends. And the question is, do we have character? Number four, a little bit quicker now. He says this. I'm not very good at speaking. So I said before in that list, Moses stuttered. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servants. I am slow of speech and tongue. So um, you may have heard this before. When I was at school, I have a speech impediment. I was kicked out of school when I was six years old um, because I bit the girls and it was a special, girl, a special school for uh, people with um, dance and movement and sp- um, speaking issues. It was an elocution school. I got kicked out. So I never got fixed, basically. And um, so I have a slight speech impediment. So when I was at school, the, if you're old, please, I, I beg that some of you remember this, at least. Um, there were records. Who remembers records? Praise Jesus. Okay. <laughs> so there were... There were Single playing records, and there were albums, yeah? Single playing records went at 45 RPM, remember? My nickname at school was 33 and a third, because they said, can you remember what, at what speed albums went at? 33 and a third, because my, my friends were geniuses. They said, your voice sounds like a, 45, a single record being played at album speed. That's what they said, and they were absolutely right. Like, now I sound posh. So I'm not eloquent at all. At all. And yet, you know, God's used me in this, in this area. Here's my fourth tip, and then we'll finish with my fifth tip. My fourth tip is this. Again, I'm just going to tell you stories. I hope that's okay. It's not deep, but it's true. Um, so when I became a Christian at school, there was a lot of, it's quite a violent school, my school. So um, everybody's afraid of someone. And, there was, you know, so, as every school, there were school bullies. So one day, this lad comes up to me with his posse, and I'm eating sweets. And I have two loves in my life when I was about 14. One was Jesus, and the other was sweets. So I had a bag of toffees. This lad comes up to me with his mates. Everybody's watching. He goes, Oi, Gibbs, you're a Christian. 
Christians are supposed to give, so give me one of your sweets. That's a catch-22 situation, okay? Because if I don't give him a sweet, it's like you're not much of a Christian. And if I do, nobody believes I'm doing it because I'm a Christian. They all believe I'm doing it because I'm scared. So here's what I did. Now, I'd not long become a Christian. And I'd heard that, you know, Jesus said to his disciples, don't worry about what to say, I'll give you the words. So I said, all right, let me think about it. And in my head, I'm praying, okay, God, what should I do? What do I do here? Like, I have no idea what to do. It's says catch-22 situation. And then this idea came to me. I would say, I think we're, this is a Pentecostal church, so we believe that God can speak to us. I, this is the first time God gave me what I would call a word of, what the Bible calls a word of wisdom. So I said this. Yes, I am a Christian. I will give you a sweet. But first, you've got to say please. And this is what he did. He, he literally did this. He went. Please. Cheers. <laughs> and that's what he did. And, and here's, here's uh, what I've learned is that God can give you the words. You have to be available. It's amazing what God will say to you as you're speaking to people. You might not know the answers. It's not an excuse. I'm sorry, it just isn't an excuse. Because God can give you wisdom as you're doing it. The fact of the matter is that you may not. You may have never had a word of wisdom, probably because you've never put yourself in a situation where you need one. God's power is always going to be greater than the opportunity you give him. So if you don't give him an opportunity, you're never going to experience it. But if you give him great opportunity, if you step out in faith... You'll see God act. That would be my advice. Finally, he says this. Eventually, he says, send someone else. Oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. Please send someone else to do it. So, um, this is not something I learned from school. This is something I learned um, just after I left school. So um, I, I have, uh, when I was born, I had a full set of grandparents. I don't know about you, but I did have a favorite. He was called Grandpops. So this is my Grandpops. So he, um, he was a bit, he looked a bit like the mad professor out of uh, Bachelor Future. And he would do, he, well, I loved him partly because he would do crazy things to make me laugh when I was a kid. He, I can't even go into it. He'd just do crazy fun things. He'd buy me chocolate eclairs from Greg's. I'm a sucker for chocolate eclairs from Greg's. They existed like 80 years ago. So, yeah, yeah, I did. So, he used to buy me uh, chocolate eclairs from there. So, I absolutely loved him. And when I was, I think it was about 16 years old, um, he was lived in London. We lived in Manchester. I'd come back to the Lord. Sorry, it was 21 years old. I'd come back to the Lord. I'd bachelored 18, came back to the Lord at 21. So, he um, was diagnosed with cancer. So, he um, sent me a letter. It wasn't that well written because he was struggling. And he said, um, Paul, um, I know I'm dying. I don't know what happens when I die. I know you're a Christian. Can you, can you tell me? So I was in London at the time when he, when he, he did this. So I went to speak to him in, in the hospital. So he's very ill, and he's asking me about Jesus. Now, I have no issue speaking in front of you guys. I've stood on the stage in front of, I would say, about 30,000 Brazilians. The estimate was 100,000, but we're English. So I reckon about 30,000. So, um, no problem. No, no, no problem. In my family, different altogether. Anybody else like that? In my family, different altogether. So, what fear does is usually it doesn't make you run the other way. It makes you compromise. 
It makes you compromise. You kind of do something like you're supposed to do, but not really what you're supposed to do. So what I did was not tell him about Jesus. What I did was I got my Bible, opened it to like one of the Gospels and said, here, Granddad, if you read this bit, this bit will tell you what to do. And left. A few weeks later, I can't remember all the details, but a few weeks later, I got a letter, very difficult handwriting saying, hello, Paul, that was the nicest present anybody's ever given me, but I still don't understand. I'm still very frightened. So I thought, this is ridiculous. So I booked to go get a train and go and see him. A few days before um, the journey, but time off work, he passed away. So mum wakes me up in the morning. I go, I go to the funeral. I walk into the funeral um, um, by the church, walking through a graveyard. My gran runs up to me, gives me a big hug. She's crying her eyes out. She says, Paul, where is he? So what I wanted to do was say, well, Gran, he's in heaven. I don't know how that works, but here's some facts I know about heaven. Every tear will be wiped away. It's eternal peace. It's relationship with God. It's love. It's light. That's what I wanted to say. What I actually said was, I don't know, Gran. I don't know. I hate the devil. I hate the devil. Because the devil plays on our fears. Faith activates God. Forgive the expression, but faith turns God on. Look at people in the Bible. God used some interesting characters, but they all had faith to believe him. That's, that flicks God's switch. What, what activates the enemy is your fear. So God asks you to do something, and you think, not this time. Send someone else, not this time. Next time. What you've just done is you've just shown your hands to the devil. Whatever it was, it was fear of rejection, fear of man fear of failure, whatever it was. You've just shown your hands to the devil. He knows what to do. He knows what button to press now every single time God tells you to do something. Resist the devil and he will flee does not mean stand there like Gandalf going, you shall not pass. Resist the devil means don't give in. And eventually he'll give up. But I gave in. And I regret it to this day. Please send someone else well, here's what Jesus would say, and here's what the disciples would say. Tag, you're it. An alpha's coming up, and tag, Peter, Paul, John, Luke, tag, you're it. You're next in line. This is your opportunity. There is no one else, probably, in your business, in your office, in your supermarket. Your other next-door neighbor doesn't believe in Jesus. You, you, you're it. And Moses had all these different excuses. But here's my final little tip. Years later, Moses finally, eventually Moses says yes. And then years later, after a journey, the people he's leading do something horrible. They make a big image. It's terrible. This is what happens. It's fascinating. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. I would have stopped there. He didn't. But now, please forgive their sin. But if you don't, then blot me also out of the book you have written. Can you imagine saying that to God? Please, please forgive their sin. But if you don't forgive them, don't forgive me. That's what, that's what Moses actually says to God. What if God said, okay, fair enough. That's amazing. 
Something had happened on the journey. Moses has gone on this journey. His heart had been changed. If it had stayed where he was, his heart wouldn't have been changed. But he went on the journey and God changed his heart. If you invite people to Alpha, if you go on the journey with them, God will change your heart. There are two emotions that drive us in life. Every other emotion is based on one of these. Love and fear. Show me an angry person and I'll show you someone who's afraid of something. Show me a generous person, I'll show you somebody who loves something. Love and fear. You may have fear, but love is something God will put in your heart and it will replace any fear. You'll dominate anything. You'll dominate. You won't be afraid. You might be now, but when you go on the journey, God will go with you. I think that's a wonderful promise that God makes. So um, this morning, I'd love to just give you an opportunity. I'm going to give you an invitation this morning. I'm giving you an invitation to invite, uh, to invite, two people to Alpha. Okay, so let's just close our eyes first. Lord, I pray right now as we as we close our eyes, I pray for everyone in this room that you will put on their heart and mind two people to invite to Alpha. Maybe more, Lord. Maybe more. But I pray you'll put those people on their hearts and minds to invite, to give a leaflet, wherever it might be. Okay, I'm, pray, I'm praying that now. I'm praying, I'm praying and believing that God's putting, or even, the, even just, you know, your mind's automatically thinking about people. Here's the challenge. The challenge is to promise God today, right now, that you will invite them over the next week, I guess. When's Alpha? Wednesday, before Wednesday. Phone them up. Don't send them an email. Phone them up if you can. Go and knock on the door. Two people. So the challenge is not to think of two people. The challenge is to promise God right now. Now, before I ask you to promise God anything... Let me just say this. There's a verse in the Bible that says it's better not to make a vow than make a vow and break it. So I always feel worried about make, asking people to make vows and promises, but I think this one's worthwhile. Please do not make the promise unless you know you're going to go and do it. Now, sometimes making a promise forces us to do something. So I want to, I want to encourage you to make that promise to God. Um, the sign that you're going to make that promise, the sign that you're going to say to God, yes, I will do this. I will invite these two people is in the next 10 seconds I count down, is that you will stand. And I'm going to pray for those who stand. So please stand if you want to make that promise. Okay, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Lord, I pray for those who are stood up uh, right now. I pray, Lord, that you will give them words and wisdom. I pray, Lord, um, when they're afraid, you will give them such a love for those people that they'll do it anyway. And God, I pray, Lord, that um, the people will say yes. And even if these people don't say yes, they will tell others, Lord. And they will see people come to know you, and it will be the greatest blessing of their life, I pray. That their hearts will be thrilled, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I ask it. Amen. Amen.
Please take your seats. Um, let me just, um, this has just come on mind. It's nothing to do with preaching. I'm going to say this one really quickly. Billy Graham died, uh, this, was it this week or last week? It's a great story about Billy Graham. I just want to say this to, to some of you who, I think there are some of you who are saying, I'll do it, but I'm just not standing up. Let me just tell you a story. Um, uh, Billy Graham, um, crusade many, many years ago, a man, quite a, quite a proud man, decided that he would come to know Jesus. So Billy Graham gave the appeal, and he says to this, this is not in my preach, but I just feel as I'm supposed to say it. He says to the steward, um, okay, I want, I want to do what Billy Graham's saying, but I want to do it in my seat. I want to come to Jesus now. And the steward said to him, no. He said, no, I don't think you're ready. The next night, the guy came again. Same thing happened. He felt responsible. He said to the steward, hey, I, I, I want to go forward this time. I need to go and, and give my life to, to him. Can you show me the way? Not they often did if you ever went to one of those things. The, the steward said, stop where you are right now. I can lead you to the Lord right now. Sometimes doing something makes a difference because it says something about our heart. Some of us were like, I will do, but I'm not going to stand up. Can I, can I just challenge you if you don't mind? Sometimes that's just pride. And for those of you who did that, I believe God would want to deal with that uh, in you, and I would encourage you to just pray through that. If you made a promise but you didn't stand, I don't need people to stand, okay? I just think those defining moments make a difference in our lives, and something breaks within us. So I'd encourage you with that. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. I know it's not been super deep, but I really appreciate you listening. Thank you so much. I'll be praying for you guys, Alpha. Thank you, Rosie. Bless you. Thank you.